Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Rational Security. This is a special joint podcast with the Lawfare Podcast, the first day of the rest of our lives edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast, and on the podcast today, we are going to be wrapping up uh, an historic election that I think is fair to say stunned everyone here in the studio today. Um, This is not the set of questions that we imagine we'd be talking about today uh, with the president-elect Donald Trump, Uh, but we're going to try and go through... Some of what happened last night, what we see is some of the big national security and foreign policy themes uh, and questions about going forward and what we can expect on the issues that you all who listen to podcasts care about in a Trump administration. Uh, I'm here with my friends Tamara Kaufman-Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hey. Hey, Shane. Hi, Shane. Operating on probably not collectively seven hours of sleep between the four of us. Yeah, Yeah. maybe. Um, So let's kind of dive right into this. Um, I guess the first big question is, on my mind, is what the hell happened? Um, We went into the election on Tuesday, I think, looking at all of the polls from 538 to the upshot to the scores and scores of polls that have been done. All have seemed to suggest a tightening race, but no more than usual in the last days of a campaign. And trends and metrics and demographic data that seem to clearly favor Hillary Clinton uh, winning, if not necessarily in a route, a very comfortable lead, and that there were multiple paths to victory for Secretary Clinton and very few uh, for Donald Trump. And we presumed there would be vanishingly few as the night went on. Uh, It was pretty clear when Florida turned for Trump and then North Carolina that something was wrong in the model, perhaps wrong in the numbers, we'd overlook something. Um, ben, you you have your own election uh, polls forecast that you've been keeping. So I want to sort of start, kick off with you. What do you think happened here? Why were the polls wrong? And if so, why were they wrong? Well, the polls are clearly wrong. Um, and, um, and the polls were wrong across lots of different states um, by in some cases, a significant margin, in some cases, a small sort of within the margin of error margin that uh, is the difference between uh, a reasonably close race that she wins and a reasonably close race in which she loses. Um, but uh, the polls were definitely wrong and they were all wrong in the same direction. And that does suggest uh, one of two possibilities uh, to me. One is that the much vaunted Hillary turnout operation did not, in fact, successfully turn out the uh, large numbers of minority uh, voters who were going to be as offended by Donald Trump as one would expect minority voters to be offended um, by him. And the second possibility is that um, uh, there is, in fact, a hidden Trump vote of a large number of very resentful working class white people who did turn out. Now, I think it's going to take a while to figure out 
um, which is the dominant theme there. But I suspect that both of those were going on. Do you guys have any thoughts on what went wrong or what yeah, I mean, blinders like, were? Um, once again, it is the vindication of Nate Silver, um, who always said that, um, you know, even though he was sort of maligned for giving Trump 30 percent chance um, when others said it was much, much smaller than that, um, uh, he basically posited exactly what happened, um, which was both that Hillary would take the uh, the popular vote and, uh, and Trump could theoretically win the Electoral College, which is, of course, what happened. Um, uh, and also the notion that, um, you know, he really went on all in on this notion that um, if one poll is wrong, if one state is wrong, it means something is happening, right? There's a network effect. Um, and that's why you can't say, you know, that there's just this, you know, uh, five or 10 percent chance that, that it was something more substantial than that. Um, you know, uh, at, at sort of it's hard to know where to focus the autopsy at this point, right? Um, Hillary ran, uh, you know, a, an excellent campaign, um, really amazing ground government. Um, ground game coverage. I actually went up to Pennsylvania this weekend um, <laughs> to Canvas. Um, I was uh, incredibly impressed by sort of the sophistication of um, of the outfit and kind of how, you know, how quick they were able to mobilize people. Um, you know, obviously it, it came up short here. Um, uh I think it's um, well the the sort of the demographic questions are going to be incredibly important to um, not just the future of the Democratic Party but but also the future of the Republican Party and what lessons they choose to learn from this um, and if they learn the right ones or the wrong ones or enduring lessons or temporary lessons um, you know but but I think. Uh, uh, other than those questions, sort of, um, it may be time to just leave the polls behind and, and say, um, uh, we got a hell of a job ahead of us um, and start figuring out what exactly is going to come next. Yeah, so I think there was some commentary on the news networks last night about whether uh, the outcome here spells the death of big data in election campaigns, both on, used by campaigns and also used by the media to track campaigns. I don't know yet whether it makes sense to draw precisely that conclusion. And I actually think that it's very, very difficult to draw any clear conclusions about what went wrong from an election that has this close a result. Yeah, this was razor thin and our 79 electoral votes when she gets the popular vote majority is not a mandate <laughs> right and yet you know the electoral college did exactly what it's meant to do which is take a razor thin majority yeah. and and create a larger mandate although it's still not overwhelming but um but when you have an election that uh you win or lose by this few votes it means it could very, very easily have gone the other way. And there's any number of potential factors whose small impact, however marginal, might have been, you know, the tipping point. And so I think uh, I have no doubt that Hillary Clinton cam Clinton campaign people will be up nights for years to come uh, trying to figure out those counterfactuals. But I think when you have an election this close, it's pretty much impossible. To what extent do you all think that any national security issues, whether it be the war in Syria, the fight against ISIS, radicalism, uh, countering violent extremism, Islamic radicalism, as Trump insisted on calling it, to what extent did these themes or these debates that 
in many cases do divide people, do you think drove people to the polls? I mean, we're really talking about, you know, a, a, a turnout at every election is about turnout, obviously, but it seems like there was a an impassioned, highly motivated group of people that turned out for Trump in key counties that flipped from blue in 2012 to red now. <laughs> do you think that there were issues that are sort of germane to what we talk about that were driving those people or were these wholly different issues? Yeah, I I actually think that it, in the broadest sense, this was a campaign framed around change. Mm-hmm. And and uh, Clinton said, what kind of change? Trump said, do you want change or four more years of Obama? But it was it was about change. And um, everything we see in the data about Trump supporters suggested that even if they weren't comfortable with his specific proposals, they wanted somebody who would shake things up or blow things up as the case may be. And, uh, and so I, I don't think that national security issues figure much into that kind of thinking because to the extent that national security figures into American political campaigns, it's usually about fear, not about change. Um, and fear would drive people away from a change agent, not toward it. I, I do think though, I was mulling this over last night and this morning And I do think there's one way in which our broader national security conversation, really the conversation of the last 10 or 15 years, has figured into this campaign, which is that um, whether you're on the left or on the right, there is sentiment on all parts of the political spectrum that the way in which America is engaged in the world in the last 10 or 15 years is unsatisfactory. You know, whether the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan probably symbolizing this to voters on the left and right more than anything else, with two-thirds of Americans judging these wars to be a failure in public opinion polling. And so what that creates, I think, is a permissive environment for a candidate who, like Donald Trump, doesn't have foreign policy experience. So it's not people are not looking for somebody who is a safe pair of hands in the world. They're not happy with the way the U.S. is engaged in the world. They think that we are not out there doing good things. And even though they might disagree about what we should do, they know they want less of what they see. And so they're willing to vote for somebody with no street cred on national security um, because they don't see engagement on national security as beneficial to them. Like, I also think that, um, you know, I don't think that that, uh, any one of those issues are actually what drove people to the polls, um, uh, especially in the the numbers and makeup that we saw. I do think, though, that um, that Trump successfully used sort of national security issues um, to advance and create a narrative that ended up being really very enduring. Um, and that narrative was um, uh, that there is there are these problems um, that exist in the world and that um, uh, the elites or the left or sort of or, or the, the group in power um, uh they don't want to um, call them by the same names. They don't want to address them in, in the racial terms or the class terms or sort of, um, uh, you know, the, the, the terms in which there's sort of there's a, a common understanding. Um, and so uh, uh, what happens is that um, uh, somebody like Donald Trump comes along and, and offers the wrong answers to those problems. Um, but because he's 
able to frame them in a way that that connects with uh, with a particular base, um, it feels like that's more of a solution than the kind of wishy-washy elite, well, it's not radical Islam, we're not at war with Islam, we're not this, but it's complex, and this is, you know, Sunnis and Shias, and, you know, I, I think for a huge amount of voters, they're like, that. what is that? You're getting it wrong. Yeah, when Donald speaks to weakness somehow. Exactly. Yeah. When Donald Trump looks at them and says, you know, it's Muslims, and you have to say the word radical Islamic terrorism, I, I think that resonates. And, and I do think that in different ways, uh, that was Donald Trump's message, and, and that's what got people to the polls. So I I actually would go a step further than that. I think broadly speaking, national security issues played a very substantial role in Trump's campaign. It's just that it's a slightly indirect role. Mm -hmm. So if you ask the question, make if you if you if you campaign on the slogan "Make America Great Again," uh, there's two in comparisons, right? A great again compared to the last time we were great, which was X, right? But there's also make America great in comparison to whom in the world. And one of Trump's big themes has always been we don't win anymore. We don't win in trade. We don't win in, you know, in our alliances. Everybody's bilking us for protection and, and they're not paying. Um, and we don't win again in, we don't win in these wars that we start, you know, in national, uh, in, in Iraq, in, in Afghanistan. And I think the, uh, when you put all that together, he is describing pervasively a posture of, of, of global weakness, whether correctly or incorrectly, and I think incorrectly, but, um, but that's core to his whole, to the whole make America great again thing is the idea that, uh, we're getting our butts kicked, uh, and he merges the national security arena and the trade arena. Um, and I think that's a really significant component of the way he's presented himself. I, I would even go one more step further, I think, beyond that. And I mean, clearly one of one of Trump's tools, even before he became a candidate and before he became the nominee, was this sort of propping up of the other, which I think was most <laughs> visibly demonstrated in insisting that President Obama wasn't born in the United States, which speaks to a paranoia and a mythology that not only was he not born here, but he is somehow in league with the people, <clears throat> i.e. the Muslims and the terrorists who are trying to undo us. I mean, we remember that famous New Yorker cover with Michelle and Barack in the Oval Office doing the fist bump and dressed up like, you know, militants speaking to this absurd paranoia about them. And <clears throat> I think he used that. And I mean, if you look at the base of his support, which is now a pillar of the Republican Party, it would seem, in the alt-right and in white nationalism. These are people who not only hold up you know, the president's otherness, but believe that there is, in fact, a conspiracy on the part of the government to weaken us, to sell us out. They think that the Iran deal was an effort to do that. And so I think, Ben, like even the way you're saying indirectly, it's all sort of part of the same argument, right, that goes to his point that we are weak, we are no longer great because these people who are leading us have failed us and sold us out. Right. There, there's also a way directly, and, and I don't think we should be uh, shy about saying it, especially over the, the coming weeks and months. Um, uh, there is a direct national security issue that um, is the reason for Trump's victory, um, and that's the national security threat of white supremacy and the national security threat of guns. Um, guns are the number one domestic national security issue. 
period. That is factual. And I know that that taps into lots of sort of homeland views of, you know, uh, Second Amendment and um, uh, there, there's real cultural divide there. Um, but whenever you actually look at um, what people are concerned about, what law enforcement is concerned about, um, uh, those are the kinds of uh, threats that, um, that manifest. We actually saw a mass shooting that occurred yesterday in Southern California at a polling location. Um, uh, you know, Ben and Quinta uh, authored a post uh, late last week, I guess, um, that was talking about um, thinking about Donald Trump's uh, supporters uh, in the language of countering violent extremism. Um, I think that's uh, it's really important that the national security community not lose focus here. Um, uh, extremist ideologies that pose a violent threat to others, um, that is terrorism. Um, that is our jobs uh, of what we're supposed to be focused on here. Um, I think that we uh, fairly or not, and, and sort of what the real reason for, for Trump's win or not, um, those those people feel emboldened. Um, they now feel that um, that they really are the silent majority, um, that other people hold their views as well. Um, uh, I think that we are likely to see a, an uptick in violence, an uptick in uh, uh, hate speech, race-based violence. Um, and so, look, I, I think we really need to be thinking about that, both in understanding uh, sort of the, the future of the Trump presidency um, <laughs> and also the future of, of how we're going to think about these uh, these groups of people. It's got to be in the language of, of terrorism and violent extremism. You know, it's an interesting point that um, the last time we had a significant uh, resurgence of uh, white supremacist linked terrorist violence in this country was in the mid-1990s and it was during a Democratic administration that found itself very defensive on issues of gun rights and federal power and and things like that and uh and so it will be interesting to see how a republican administration navigates this because i uh, susan i think you're right that these are groups that clearly feel empowered by this victory and you know we have yet to see what exactly they will see as their um quid pro quo <laughs> for the support that they gave to this candidacy um or what their expectations will be of a Trump administration but uh it's hard to imagine anyone who takes the reins of the federal executive branch um feeling comfortable with a lot of other folks out there contesting the federal government's monopoly on the use of force uh okay another set of questions i want to look at um now begins the business of governing. Uh, the transition uh, officially is starting today. Um, inauguration, of course, is January 20th. Um, I want to sort of look at the, the, the problems, at least the initial challenges that the Trump administration coming to administration seems to be facing. Based on reporting I've been doing with some of my colleagues at the Daily Beast, what we're finding is that um, they're having an exceptionally difficult time finding people who will come in and serve in some of the more senior and operational level positions. Not so much that you know, he'll have trouble finding an attorney general or a defense secretary or secretary of state. In fact, some names are even already being floated for that. Last night, Rudy Giuliani, possibly a justice, uh, Newt Gingrich as secretary of state. Um, but the, the deputy secretaries, the operational people, the chiefs of agencies, the general counsels, the people who you know, many of whom probably are the kind of people who listen to this podcast and keep the government running. Um, of course, there were, you know, hundreds of Republican national security experts and officials who came out last year and said, we will never 
serve in this administration, and we think that Donald Trump is a uniquely dangerous candidate uh, and that he shouldn't be the nominee. More have come forward since then. Most recently, Mike Hayden, the ex-CIA director, called Trump a useful fool in the old Soviet model. Um, so it's going to be really hard to fill these positions. One person we interviewed uh, who was basically begged to join the Homeland Security Transition Team, the Trump staffer confessed to him, you know, basically, if we win, I'm going to have 20 positions at DHS that I need to fill. And right now I have no one. I can't find anyone who will do it. So how do you staff a government in a situation like this? And do you expect that you're just going to be getting, you know, the JV team? Or are people going to come back in out of a sense of duty? So it's a really big problem. And it's a big problem that um, I've actually been trying to write something about today in, in a slightly different context, which is, you know, when the, the center of gravity of the national security community regards the president as a national security threat, and that's the reality that we're dealing with Correct. right now, uh, it is very hard to find national security professionals of any reputation or experience who are willing to uh, represent him and work for him. And this is a situation, the Washington Post ran a story today about the palpable sense of dread sell, set, settling over the intelligence community today at the prospect of having to actually give Donald Trump real briefings. And, um, and so, look, there are a lot of reasons why the intelligence community and the larger national security apparatus regards him with dread. Some of them are the illiberalisms that we were talking about before. Some of them are the bizarre and continuingly unexplained links to Vladimir Putin uh, and the attitudes about Russia. And links, let's be very clear, about which he has given completely contradictory statements and explanations. Correct. Some of them are the uh, uh, very peculiar uh, and erratic behavior, which, you know, this is the intelligence folks are a stolid and uh, bunch that, you know, tends to be pretty tight lipped and care about what they what people say. And this is somebody who shoots from the hip and says all kinds of things. And so it's not surprising under those circumstances. And then, oh, and then there's the other factor that has certainly appalled lots of CIA people, which is uh, the uh, uh, joyful insistence that, you know, a new era of waterboarding and, and killing terrorist families is just around the corner. And it is not a surprise that if you behave that way, it becomes very difficult to fill uh, mid-senior level management positions in a variety of agencies. And I think, look, there's two, there's only two possibilities here. One is that we end up with a real JV team. And that's, that's a terrifying idea that, um, you know, that, that you have a national security apparatus led by somebody this er erratic and peculiar, uh, who has nobody strong around him. And the other possibility is that he, uh, in fact surrounds himself with, with strong senior level people, uh, who then attract a, a stronger, lower or mid-level cadre. And even if you're, uh, really suspicious of and anxious about Donald Trump, as I certainly am across a lot of, uh, axes, uh, the possibility of a Trump presidency staffed by, in, uh, entirely by mediocrities, uh, uh, is a genuinely terrifying possibility. 
So look, I've had a conversation with at least um, you know three or four people just today uh, about whether or not they're going to resign their positions, um, you know, at various parts of the government. Um, uh, this is an area in which I've had a complete change of heart in the past 24 hours. Um, before, when it was sort of clear that Hillary was going to win, I was very much, um, you know, cheering on this idea that like no reasonable person should serve, and you know everyone would just resign, and it was going to be this sort of statement. Um, now I- I'm with Ben. Um, uh, I think it's it's a question of duty. It's it's a question of um, of a lot of people's lives are going to depend on the government and, and the United States getting this right. Um, we need smart people. Um, you know, I, I gave some um, you know some specific advice to a friend who um, it was actually advice that was given to me whenever I was joining the federal government, and that's. Um, uh, not quite in these concrete terms, but um, that you need to uh, draft a resignation letter. I mean, you need to keep it in your desk drawer. And um, the the first moment that you are asked to compromise um, the safety of this country, your personal values, the rule of law, uh, you have to be prepared to, to resign your, your post. And that is the only way to effectively serve um, in this kind of administration. Um, uh, and, and that needs to be um, not just uh, a sort of a, a mantra in your heart, right, that you're always ready to quit, um, but that you're actually like financially prepared to quit, that you, um, the moment you are serving someone where you, uh, uh, you aren't prepared to walk away, um, because that will be the only power that people have. Um, uh, then you get in a situation where you start rationalizing and compromising, um, Look, we're, we're in a very delicate place right now of um, wanting, uh, you know, of all of our fortunes being tied together um, and wanting our president to succeed because it's, he is our president and this is our country um, versus a, a real fear about normalizing this. Um, you know, that, you know, Obama gave, you know, a very um, conciliatory speech today. Uh, Hillary Clinton gave a really lovely um, uh, concession speech earlier, sort of right the, about the peaceful transition. Um, you know, a, a fear that sort of over the weeks and months that come, we're going to whitewash away of what happened and and pretend as though this is sort of business as usual. Um the, the people who serve, I, I think it's their duty, but I, they have a very fine uh, line to walk, and, and I just wish them a lot of courage, honestly. So, Susan, I think the advice that you gave to your friend is excellent advice. And I would say that the, the concern about um, kind of finding ways to justify or override your discomfort and, you know, stay in place uh, um, is a real concern and, you know, if we're being honest, this is Washington, and I think a lot of those people who might have been asked by a, a Trump transition team a month ago about these posts and said, no, thank you, or hell no, if they were called today, might well change their minds. And they would justify it perhaps by saying there's a sense of duty to give the best advice possible to the, the man who is going to be the president of the United States. Uh but they would also be justifying it by, you know, the ability to have access to power and to seek to shape it by being present. And that's a, that's a Washington disease, right? And so I think the answer that you propose, Susan, you know, to have that resignation letter and be, be mentally and, and logistically prepared to use it is a good antidote to that tendency. But I suspect actually that the problems that the Trump team 
has had uh, in in coming up with potential staffing structures is going to be ameliorated rather quickly. And I would note that for all the very prominent names that we saw on Never Trump letters of various kinds, there are some very prominent names who are at, who either supported Trump outright or simply didn't have anything in particular to say. Um, I would, you know, and one of them is a former national security advisor, Steve Hadley, uh, who I think, you know, has kept his cards very close to his chest and is now perfectly positioned for a very senior post and is about as pragmatic, non-ideological, you know, thoughtful, a Republican foreign policy and national security strategist as I could possibly name. So, you know, he now may have the opportunity to be in close proximity to power. And and so it does go immediately to the question of what's the character of that power and the purpose of that power. And I think, you know, in the foreign policy zone, at least, we, at least the way I was trained, we're conditioned to sort of think about the structure of international politics and that there are certain truths that no individual political leader, no matter how powerful, can truly escape. Um, and that that means that the foreign policy domain is a somewhat more constrained domain for a president of the United States than domestic policy arenas. Um, and I would like to rely on that. And I would like to rely on the idea that a Trump administration will be compelled by force of numbers to reach out to establishment figures with expertise and good judgment and a strong sense of principle who are willing to exercise it in the way that Susan describes. Those are like, those were the going in premises of my approach to politics and foreign policy in an election. But I don't know in this case whether they hold. Because this is a man who's demonstrated that he doesn't let facts get in the way of his opinions. Um, and he's, he's also demonstrated a, a lack of, not just a lack of fealty to, but a lack of understanding of core components of American foreign policy that have lasted in all the decades since the United States became a global power. And so those comforting uh, assumptions that have guided me for a long time don't look so comforting to me in the cold light of this particular morning. So I really agree with that uh, uh, across all the axes, but I'm going to add a few uh, that cut in different directions. So cutting in the more alarmed direction is the fact that while the president may be more constrained in terms of the list of things he can do in the foreign policy arena in pragmatic fashion, he's less constrained in, in the legal sense. And so, you know, one of the reasons that presidents don't do certain things in the foreign policy arena is, you know, not that they can't, it's that it would be nuts to do those. And so you assume a rational actor and the rational actor will always behave within a very limited set of parameters. Well, that raises the question of whether you're correct to assume a rational actor. And in this case, I think you can you can kind of make a case both ways. You cannot make a case that this is an actor with rational rhetoric, but you can make a, a case that this is somebody who's conducted his business affairs in a in a fairly rational sense, fashion over a long period of time, uh, if not an ethical fashion. Um, so cutting the other direction is uh, the fact that uh, because he doesn't know anything, uh, this is not somebody who has very strong policy ideas about specific stuff. He, he works in mood. 
And that means that if you imagine that he points, appoints somebody Secretary of Defense and somebody a Secretary of State, you could really imagine that those people are delegated in a way that Barack Obama or Bill Clinton or even George W. Bush, who was a, you know, was, you know, not an intricate policy mind, but really did uh, insist that he was the decider, as he put it, right? Um, that these people, you know, would never have tolerated. You could imagine a, a, a delegation of a lot of stuff to them. And if you go back to uh, the alleged conversation, which I certainly have no reason to disbelieve between Trump's people and Kasich's people about whether Kasich would be vice president. Uh, remember, Trump offered him, you can do foreign and domestic policy. And Kasich's people asked, well, what's the president going to do? And they said, oh, Trump will make America great again. And so, you know, this is... Brand I, I, ambassador. Right. So I, I think you could you could really imagine a situation in which major cabinet officers are wielding enormously more day-to-day function, and that could be a real ameliorating effect. Finally, working in the other direction, this, you know, is, um, you know, the fact that um, this is a guy who, while he doesn't have a lot of specific policy ideas, does have some very kind of dramatically significant policy moods, uh, a real hostility to trade, a real hostility to, uh, you know, a, a set of signed agreements with major countries. And you don't have to have a whole lot of policy detail to tear up a lot of stuff, including, you know, you know, Including the nuclear deal with Iran, including for the nuclear deal with Iran, including NAFTA, including uh, you know all kinds of things the, that that are just sort of assumed that the United States is committed to, and so I I think there really is a but question of, of, of which those... Donald Trump shows up. Okay, each, but isn't and, that... and every day? Yes, right. each day. But isn't that why those uh, well-meaning, thoughtful experts? Uh, should be there is just, you know, to say when he uh, flies off the handle and says, tear up the deal to sort of walk him back or sober him up. I mean, I, I want, or do you think that it's a fantasy to think that a personality like that can be constrained? So I want them there because I want their resignations. I want their public resignations when he behaves completely irrationally as as a as a decision forcing mechanism uh and I want their counsel now there are certain exceptions to that I have said I wrote a number of months ago that there are certain positions in the justice department that I don't believe an, an ethical lawyer can take given the things that Donald Trump has said I don't see how given what he's said about Muslim Americans and uh, how you could ethically sign up to run the Civil Rights Division, for example. Um, but I, I think those positions are, are, are exceptional. Um, and by and large, I want him surrounded by as many grown-ups as possible. So I, I sort of can't believe that I have to ask this question about the f- next president of the United States, but I, I do wonder... Um, 
whether or not Donald Trump possesses the ability to empathize with other people. Um, so we talked about the fact that he's going to get the presidential daily brief. Um, he's going to be presented with um, with a body of evidence that's going to be really difficult for him to deny. Um, you know, the briefings often include um, images of things that are that can be very, very difficult to, to look at it and to forget um, and, and to not feel galvanized, right? It's, it's one of the reasons why people in the intelligence community uh, take their jobs so seriously. Um, and so I wonder both sort of in, in the intelligence space, right, as, as he looks at images of, of people who've been harmed by chemical weapons, right? I mean, sort of the, the actual uh, uh, devastation on people's lives. Um, uh, or whenever he, you know, rips up his first trade deal and, and, and people start hurting, um, uh, I wonder whether or not he he sort of possesses sufficient um, human compassion to to want to course correct. Um, uh, every now and then we see a little bit of a flash of, of um, what seems like something human trying to get out. Um, uh, you know, whether or not um, having actions with with a genuine consequence are going to um, to shape him at all. Um, I don't know the answer to that question. Well, but look, I think we've had many presidents make many decisions that looked at in isolation, we would say that decision lacks compassion. Okay. And I think ultimately we rely as a constraint on that type of behavior by presidents, not only their innate sense of empathy, but the political reality in which they operate. No president wants to be embarrassed. No president wants to look like a fool. No president wants to look ineffective. No president wants to look wrong. Um, and, and so the politics of the presidency is the indirect method for um, inserting empathy into the equation, right? He may not personally care about the dock workers who get thrown out of work, but he will care when the congressman who's, who represents those dock workers then refuses to support one of his bills on the Hill, right? And, and that's our mechanism. I, I mean, I don't mean to sort of, um, dismiss these broader ethical and moral questions, which are real and, and troubling that we have to have that conversation. But at the end of the day, what do we have that we know we have, that we know we can rely on? We have our political system. And we're, we we got to work it. <laughs> we got to work it. And, and, uh, and we have to work it to the best of our ability to um, induce the best impulses in the executive branch. Um, <clears throat> and let's just, just one more area. Um, there's the question of what does the world make? <laughs> Of what happened here uh, yesterday, um, stock futures were down pretty dramatically overnight, but they see to, seem to be pretty normal today. I think there there may have even been a the Dow may be close to closing on a high as we're recording this. Trump sought in his acceptance speech last night to try and reassure allies, talking about the fact that we would have good relations. There's no reason why we'll have good relations as long as they're willing to have them with us, which of course sounds pretty obvious. That's usually our default position. We're willing to have good relations with people who treat us well. But in the context of a campaign in which he talked about abandoning NATO, about um, uh, getting rid of allies that he sees as deadbeats because they don't pay their fair share of uh, defense, uh, renegotiating treaties with our, and obligations with countries like Japan, 
uh, because why can't the Japanese pull their own weight <clears throat> against North Korea and China and the other threats in their region? But he, he sought to reassure last night. I guess a, a question is, um, does he actually believe that? What does that mean to him? Um, will that work given <clears throat> the American partners that, or the national partners that we have these close alliances with? Or would we be more likely to see European countries saying, you know what? Fine, we'll organize some other mutual defense pact besides NATO. It, it, so there is only one thing that will reassure people about Donald Trump. And that's true of foreign allies. It's true of foreign adversaries. And it's true of domestic um, uh, people who are as anxious as we are. And that is changed behavior. Uh, that is, if this is a guy who can, on a consistent basis, behave rationally um, and can make decisions and can read from the script when, when, it, when, those, when he needs to explain those decisions, uh, help formulate the script, but not freelance with uh, nonsensical, scary nonsense, uh, people will be reassured. If this is somebody who is going to be a, a president-elect, much less a president, of the sort that he was a candidate, we're in for a, a rollicking, scary time. And you, you don't have to look at Donald Trump to see that. All you have to look at is President Duterte in the Philippines. Granted, he's also killing people, but, um, but so I don't, I don't want to make that comparison too close. But look, he has roiled a lot of people, not just by shooting drug dealers, also by running his mouth and by the fact that nobody knows what this guy is or what he really represents. And that's the worry. Uh, and I think absent a change in behavior, you're going to have really anxious people. Well, I, I would say that a lot of America's allies and partners around the world have been really anxious throughout this campaign. A lot of them, some of them, um, and particularly in the region that I study the most closely, have been anxious about the last several years of the Obama administration. And so the starting position is one of anxiety about American leadership. And that, I think, is really important context because it's not simply that, you know, they look at Trump throughout the campaign and so they're worried. They were already worried. They're already living in a very uncertain, challenging environment with a resurgent Russia or a, a resurgent, you know, a, res a rising China or a, you know, regional order that's collapsed, or civil wars on their border. I mean, these are what America's allies and partners around the world are dealing with. And, um, and the, the overarching demand from, you know, every foreign interlocutor I've engaged with over the course of our election campaign has been for more, more American engagement, more American leadership, more American responsiveness. And, um, and if we know anything consistent about Donald Trump's foreign policy approach, it's uh, it's that it's very uh, mercantilist and it's very quid pro quo in its orientation. And so allies whose starting position is you've been doing too little, we want you to do more, are going to be disappointed at the get-go. I imagine that a lot of America's partner governments around the world are doing two simultaneous things today. 
they are number one putting to their their working level staffs are putting together long memos explaining why their relationship with Washington is good for Washington, why it's beneficial to the United States to maintain things the way they are or even make them more intense. And they're all, you know, going to be doing the economic and the security and the political calculations and making that argument. That's probably a good thing to do. Um, but the other thing that I, I'm sure all of them are doing, not at the working level, but at the level of political leadership, is they are all figuring out what they can do right now without the United States. You know, if the United States really is not going to be in their corner, what's their plan B? And and putting into place the steps to implement their plan B now. They're not going to wait till January 21st. They're not going to wait until they have their first White House meetings. They're doing it now. And to me, when we're dealing with anxious allies already, it only reinforces the tendency we already saw towards self-help. And so to me, that creates a much more challenging set of problems around the world for the United States. And just to close it out, going back to the point we were discussing earlier about will the Republican foreign policy establishment come home, quote unquote, to Donald Trump administration, this is where it's going to matter. Um, because those establishment folks, number one, have the relationships and can try to reassure and head off some of that self-help behavior. And also, they're the ones who can explain to Donald Trump what the consequences for the United States will be if those allies are not reassured. If they're not there and that doesn't happen, countries are going to go gallivanting off in their own directions. I, I just want to say one additional thing about that, which is it's not just that they're going to do self-help. It's they're going to look for alternatives. And there are two really big alternatives out there. One is Vladimir Putin and one is Xi Jinping. And uh, they're not great alternatives, which is why these people, uh, these countries haven't turned to them before. But uh, you don't have to make America too much less great before they start looking like like uh, viable alternatives. The other thing I think it's important to note, and I think this goes back to the question of temperament and personality, and that's um, the importance of being able to sort of um, bifurcate relationships in the political sphere, especially whenever you're working with foreign policy. Um, the ability to have someone insult you in public um, for purposes of their own um, uh, constituencies, their own countries, um, and then have a productive relationship, right? That's sort of, it's the mark of the statesman, the, the ability to sort of have one public relationship and then one other. John John Kerry is a master at taking on insults on behalf of the United States and maintaining productive relationships. Right. You know, so I, I think about sort of the, the relationship with Germany that occurred, um, you know, immediately post Snowden, right, where there's really sort of intense political rhetoric. And then actually at the cooperative level, you know, tremendously, um, you know, productive collegial kinds of engagements. Um, Donald Trump has uh, proven himself uh, incapable of sort of setting those those aside, right? He's, he's sort of entirely beholden by this notion of people who like him and think he's great, they're good, he likes them. Anyone who's insulted him, well, he doesn't like them and they can, you know, they aren't going to have a good relationship with the United States. Um, I think that um, that's where we get into uh, potentially the most uh, troubling types of scenarios um, because, you know, he just, he he appears to lack the um, political savvy, personal discipline, and frankly, um, sense of humility or our country before self to um, uh, not engage in what public Twitter wars with other heads of state. That's another question. Do they take the Twitter account away? <laughs> 
Yeah, that's that's going to be a tough one. The staff did take away the uh, take it away from him in the final days the of the last, campaign. Yeah, the yeah last but but notably, campaign. sort of as he was having this you know resurgent victory, um, you know, and the New York Times was trying to get a quote, um, he was fight you know in the sort of late hours of last night, he was fighting with them, saying that he wanted them to retract the Twitter got taken away story. Right. So in the moment in which he should be sort of at his highest, right, asserting a narrative, he's um, he's lodging petty grievances with with The New York Times. I mean, that's that's kind of what we're talking about. Yeah. Here. So I guess my maybe based on what you just said, Susan, my signal advice to America's partners around the world is um, if you want to get off on the right foot with Donald Trump right now, don't even mention his name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That may be uh, wise advice. Um, we will, of course, continue mentioning uh, the president's name on the podcast. Um, president-elect. President-elect. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, for now. And the and, and the president currently will be talking about him in closing weeks, I'm sure. Um, and just as we bring the podcast to a close, I just want to say on a personal note for all of our listeners out there um, – this is really the podcast has always just been great for us as a place to get together, and we have a lot of fun doing it. And this is a tough one today for a lot of people. Uh, there's a lot of emotions, but I hope that you will keep listening to the podcast uh, because what we always endeavor to do here is bring both levity and real insight and honesty to these issues of national security. And we are going to keep doing that on this podcast. So tune in for more. And that brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. And the Lawfare Podcast is produced in association with the Brookings Institution. You can follow Rational Security on Twitter. We're still on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. And whenever you download the podcast from Stitcher or iTunes or your favorite podcatcher, please remember to leave us a rating and review. It really helps get the word out about the show. Now more than ever. same with the Lawfare Podcast. And do the same with the Lawfare Podcast. Um, now more than ever, you need these podcasts. Our audio engineer is Quinta Jurassic. The show is edited and produced by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by the Marching Band of Darkness. No. Yeah. We need a little levity. I'm not going to go out on a down note. We're going to end on sweet, which is why our show music is performed as always by the lovely Sophia Yan. Thank you, Sophia. On behalf of my friends Tamara Kaufman, what is Ben Wittes and Susan Hennessy. I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk to you next week. Thanks. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.